Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. If every little thing that you did made a difference, would you do things a little different? This is Making Contact, a program that informs, inspires, and moves people to take action. you believe me if I told you you're the reason we are here? Would there be meaning to your breathing if your exhale made the air? The radical potential of the word mother comes after the M. It is the space that other takes up in our mouths when we say it. We are something else. We know it from how fearfully institutions wield social norms and try to shut us down. We know it from how we are transforming the planet with our every messy step toward making life possible. Mamas who unlearn domination by refusing to dominate their children, extended family and friends, community caregivers, radical childcare collectives, all of us breaking cycles of abuse by deciding what we want to replicate from the past and what we urgently need to transform. We are M-othering, mothering, ourselves. That's Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums, self-described queer black troublemaker and black feminist love evangelist. You'll hear more from her in this episode of Making Contact on Mothers and Mothering. We'll also hear about the New York Times Magazine investigation, Why America's Black Mothers and Babies Are in a Life or Death Crisis. But first, we bring you excerpts from The Laura Flanders Show with guest host Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums discussing Revolutionary Mothering, Love on the Front Lines, a new book I edited with China Martins and Maya Williams. I'll be speaking to the other editors as well as contributors Cynthia Dewioka and Victoria Law. I wrote haikus drawing from the words that these brilliant revolutionary mothers used in pieces they wrote in the book as one way of introducing them. Of course, you should Google all of them to get the full genius, but this is just a way to bring us in. For Maya, not cute or tidy, glimpses of revolution every single day. For China, tall and graceful tree, sacred nature of writing, leaving quilted words. For Cynthia, this self-creation, reclaim our generations, encumbrance throws down. And for Vicky, we all are welcome. Enough passion for again, the world is transformed. So those are 17 syllables from each of these writers in the anthology Revolutionary Mothering. Obviously you wanna read all the other syllables because they're amazing. And as we bring this revolutionary mothering genius in, I just wanted to ask each of you to invoke somebody who's not here in the studio with us, but who to you represents revolutionary mothering. If you want to shout out their name and maybe how they taught you what revolutionary mothering might be. Why don't we start with you, Cynthia? (laughs) Okay. Um, I am going to shout out Joy Harjo. She is a Native American poet and artist and storyteller and musician. Um, 
I think the best thing that she has taught me about revolutionary mothering is the bridging work that she's willing to do uh, cross-culturally, cross, -culturally, cross um, many, many social barriers. Um, I feel like she has crossed oceans um, in the ways that she's been willing to allow me to reach her and for her to reach me. Uh, so, Joy Harjo. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Can I continue, Maya? Um, I was actually sort of weighing this for a second, but I think um, Asada Shakur, and I think because of the level of sacrifice that she gave. It is one thing to mother a child and it's another thing to mother a revolution and to make the level of sacrifice to, that you can't even be with your child in that, you know, for a good part of their lives. Awesome, thanks. My grandmother, Elsie Fahrenholt, um, because she was so fierce and she was my first babysitter. I think for me it's uh, a woman who has since joined the ancestors, a woman named Carmen Rubio, who was a Lower East Side housing activist, squatter, tenants' rights organizer. And when my daughter was first born, kind of took us both under her wing and showed us what revolutionary mothering could be from someone who made a deliberate choice never to have her own children, but was involved in my daughter's life, was involved in the lives of so many children in her building, in her neighborhood, had started a community garden specifically for children, and this idea that mothering isn't just biological, but it could be part of the community. I love that we have people who have helped mother literary movements, who have mothered political movements, who have mothered us, and who have mothered alongside of us. Mm -hmm. I think that that's really beautiful. And one of the things I know that our intention was explicitly with this book is to make some of those actions that they may be in the home, they may be in movements that um, the information about them is suppressed, they may be in writing letters to other authors, mentoring other authors, and um, they may be in the archive, like. Joy Harjo is one of the people who you see writing letters of encouragement to other women writers of color over and over again. And that's a form of mothering work, but only those writers see it, and then the nosy people who go in the archive. But that's another story. One of the things we wanted to make visible with the book is, well, what would the impact on the world be if the implications of those actions that are often known about only by the, f the few people, even though it saves those people's lives, what if those were known on a larger scale? And what would we say? witnessing those actions from the inside of those actions on a grander scale. So the next question I wanted to ask you all is if you knew that everyone in the world was going to be impacted by something you know is true about revolutionary mothering, what would you want them to know? I think I would say that, um, and I think I've said it before, it's sort of like, I'm going to get this tattooed to me the amount of times I've said it, is that we are not the ones destroying the earth. I mean. You talk about the 1980s and Ronald Reagan, you know, you can talk about the welfare mother, you can talk about how immigrant mothers, you can talk about how poor mothers mm -hmm. are always the ones who are castigated and their children, of course, because, um, you know, all they can do is give birth to is, quote unquote, more problems, that they are also blamed for, you know, everything from the economic crisis to the environmental degradation, you know, and I just really always want to be like, we are not the ones who are destroying this mm -hmm. earth. You know, the 2008 Wall Street crash didn't happen because of mothers, you know? <laughs> like, we are not the ones who have been pumping poisons into the earth for the past 150 years, especially. You know, we are the ones who actually are standing on the front lines. We are the ones who are actually the ones who are the most impacted by these, you know, horrible decisions. We are the ones who are actually the, at the first 
place for having to deal with it. You know, there's a reason, for instance, that, you know, black women have an infant and maternal mortality rate that's somewhere between two to four times higher than other people in the country. We are not the ones who are destroying the earth. We are the ones who, one, are the most impacted, and we are, two, the ones who are creating the systems and communities and ecologies that are actually going to save this earth if anything is going to. So if I could if I could say that, if I could just get that into everybody else's head <laughs> to like trust mothers and trust us to build communities and stop blaming us and punishing us and taking away resources from us mm -hmm. to be able to do really basic life-giving work, I think that would be excellent. Mm -hmm. Yes, it would. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Other folks, what would you say? It's not revolutionary mothering, it's not biological, so we need to recognize that it happens all over, it's crucial, and it's doable. So you don't have to say, well, I'm not a mother, or I'm not a parent, or I don't, I don't have children. It's something that anyone can do, and it's this revolutionary act of being in community and being part of a community, and it's not an isolated nuclear family instance that some people supposedly choose to be part of and some people choose not to be. Yeah. And what would you add, Cynthia? I mean, kind of building off of everyone, I think there is no movement without mothering. So, you know, I think that it's really, really important um, for organizers, for thinkers, for scholars, for cultural workers um, struggling for change in this country, in the world, to really recognize that it's that we need the buy-in and we need the centrality of people who are caregivers and it's not an option actually because you cannot sustain your movement without that practice without that expertise and without people training other folks inside of the movement to become proficient at mothering to be able to do that with each other um, and to kind of because because it really is the practice of continuing and transformation doesn't happen, act, like it doesn't happen like that, right? Like we wish, but it doesn't. <laughs> it happens in this reiterative way. It happens in this kind of like in the mundane repetitions that actually doesn't happen in the giant eruptions. Mm -hmm. Those giant eruptions can signal that there are like major issues at stake, major rifts at stake, but how we actually pivot from that is in daily practice and that is nowhere better embedded and better established than in mothering practice. So I feel like it is imperative uh, for movements to really take that seriously. You won't exist without mothers. That was Cynthia Duyoka, along with Victoria Law, China Martins, and Maya Williams in a discussion with Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums. You're listening to Making Contact. To hear this entire program or others, visit radioproject.org. We'll have links to these writers, and you can ask for a free copy of their book. You can subscribe to our podcast, sign up for Making Contact updates, or join our conversation on social media. That's radioproject.org. The book, Revolutionary Mothering, Love on the Front Lines, is a passionate collection of essays and poems from diverse women of color around the globe. They define motherhood beyond the biological, make a call for radical mothering, and reflect on what mamas learn from children. My daughter is now 15, 
And what I've learned, you know, over and over and over is that even though she's a teenager, which means she's developing her own personality and she is her own person, um, everything that we've done together has been like, you know, has built a foundation for, you know, like the things that she believes, the ways that she acts, the ways that she reacts to injustice. And it may not necessarily always be like what I, you know, like what I would do, you know, like in my, you know, very correct political way, but you know, like, like I can see the ways in which she has taken in those values and how she acts upon them. Huh. And Cynthia, what's something you've learned recently? Something I've learned recently from my son who is, he's turning 13 this year and I'm very proud of him. He wants to be a musician. And very recently he successfully crowdfunded nearly $1,500 in order to purchase a mellophone, um, <laughs> which is essentially a French horn for a marching band because we couldn't afford it. So what I learned from him watching him in the past few years, you know, is, and I think in particular mothers have been so deeply conditioned to not want things, mm -hmm. right? To feel like when we want things, it's mm -hmm. wrong or it's indulgent. Um, and I learned from him that we should want things, <laughs> that we should follow our passion, that we should involve other people in the pursuit of that passion, and that we should take pride in the things that we are passionate about. And that seems so simple, but it's, it was a very difficult lesson to learn. I was a young mom. I had my son when I was 17. So the messaging that I heard from all around me, I had to hide my pregnancy the whole time I was pregnant, was be ashamed of who you are. Mm -hmm. Be ashamed of, I mean, I still have questions and worries about showing up at public events for my son because it's, you know, you're always like, really, he's your son? Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, how old were you when you had him? And that's always the mm -hmm. first question that happens. And then after you answer that question, all of the judgments that proceed, that, that come after, right? Um, so I think, you know, he has been so open and brave about who he is. And uh, I'm, I am taking notes. I'm taking notes on being strategic and naming the things that you want, because that's something I've seen from him is that every stage of his life, he'll be like, these are my goals now. These are my goals now. These are the, this is the person I want to be. And he's always identified that. Mm -hmm. And it took me a long time to answer the question, what do I want? If you could offer like a one sentence affirmation for somebody who might want affirmation to take them through, like something they could put on their mirror and see, and see themselves through that affirmation as opposed to through the different judgments that we talked about, through the oppressive narratives that we talked about earlier, something to displace that. What would you say to that one person who is wanting to sustain their revolutionary mothering work? That you are perfect, you know? Mm. That's like the ultimate, the ultimate mothering, the ultimate like look of love. What would you say, Cynthia? I would say, when you think you're empty, you're not. Mm -hmm. What about you, Maya? What would you say as an affirmation? I think I said I would get it tattooed, which is we are just not the ones destroying the earth. And what about you, Vicky? What would you say as an affirmation? What you're doing, no matter how small it seems, is actually really important.
You've been listening to the shared wisdom of Victoria Law, Maya Williams, Cynthia Dewey-Oka, and China Martins in discussion with Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums. We'll link to each of them and to Laura Flanders' video of their discussion at radioproject.org. You can also check out thisbridgecalledmybaby.wordpress.com. Love, resistance, and resilience amidst oppression are woven into mothering by women of color. Meanwhile, researchers and advocates for reproductive justice are raising the alarm on maternal death for black women across class lines. Here's an excerpt from Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Tuesday marked the end of the inaugural Black Maternal Health Week, a campaign founded and led by the Black Mamas Matter Alliance. The effort was launched to build awareness and activism around the state of black maternal health in the U.S. Here are a few sobering statistics that underscore the need for such a campaign. The United States ranks 32nd out of the 35 wealthiest nations in infant mortality. Black infants are now more than twice as likely to die as white infants, a disparity greater than existed in 1850, 15 years before slavery ended. Each year, an estimated 700 to 900 maternal deaths occur in the U.S., which is one of only 13 countries in the world where the rate of maternal mortality is worse than it was 25 years ago. And according to the Centers for Disease Control, black women are three to four times as likely to die from pregnancy-related causes as their white counterparts. Black women and babies make up a significant number of the cases of infant and maternal mortality in the United States. These statistics were reported in a powerful new investigation in The New York Times magazine called Why America's Black Mothers and Babies Are in a Life-or-Deaths Crisis. Even more shocking is that, according to the report and contrary to widely accepted research, education and income offer little protection. The answer to the disparity in death rates has everything to do with the lived experience of being a black woman in America, says our guest, journalist and New York Times magazine contributing writer, Linda Virosa. It's great Thank to have you, you with us. Thank a really so powerful piece. Um, why are America's black mothers and babies in a life-or-death situation today? When you go through the research—and I'm very interested in data and research—first, um, you have to look at all the things that it is not. So you start to think, well, is it because black women are not taking care of themselves? But then there's studies that say, oh, even when prenatal care is the same, then still um, black women have low birth weight babies. And then it's sort of like, well, is there some kind of gene? Is there a genetic component? Then there are studies that say, no, actually, because when African immigrants and Caribbean immigrants come here, their babies are equal to white babies in size. But after a generation, then they start to look like African-American babies, even when they're from the poorest countries. And so, after a while, it starts to just say, well, actually, there is something else going on that has to do with being a black woman in America. Talk about what it is. It is race and racism. So it's in two ways. One is just the lived experience of what happens to black women in the country 
has a physiological effect. And um, there's a wonderful researcher in uh, the University of Michigan who coined the term weathering. And so I think I love the term because it's very poetic. So it says it's like the weathering of a rock by the ocean. But it's also like the weathering, weathering a storm by a house, because it also speaks to resilience and resistance. But it is—there is a physiological effect. So if you are— stressed out, and I don't mean, oh, I'm so stressed out, the leaning kind of stress out, but repeated insults to your psyche over and over and over again, it revs up your system so that it actually starts to wear you down, the internal systems of your body. So that's part one of this, is the lived experience of being a black woman in America. The second is the way black women are treated in the healthcare system. And I, I say black women, but I mean black people. And this has been studied ad nauseum. I've read so many studies, my eyeballs want to fall out. But it's hard to get this across. Um, and a lot of people will say, oh, the Tuskegee um, experiment. That's what it's about. And I said the Tuskegee experiment was years ago. We're talking about people who are being mistreated, ill-treated right now. So if you combine the two and you take a woman who is essentially having a stress test to her body, which is pregnancy and childbirth, and you put her in this volatile situation where she's weathered and worn down by repeated insults, and then she's in a system that maybe isn't out for her best interest, you get a volatile mix. Well, I want to go back uh, to something that you point out in this piece, which is, you know, it's such a, a dramatic figure that black infants now are more than twice as likely to die uh, as white infants, which is a disparity that was greater than existed in 1850. So could you explain why that is? I mean, what accounts for the fact that during slavery, there was less uh, infant mortality than there is today. There were certainly more raw deaths, I mean, deaths then. So I actually looked at the numbers, and I said, what would it mean if there was no disparity, if there was no black-white disparity? What would happen? How many people mm. would be saved? 4,000 babies, black babies, would be saved per year if the disparity was closed. I am not sure exactly why this has happened, but I, this is happening, but I am thinking that we really need to look much more closely at both the lived experience of being a black woman in America and what it does to our bodies, as well as the treatment women get in the hospital system. I think doulas and other birth workers are a solution for right now, as we grapple with changing the system that is unfair to people of color, but I think doulas connect the technology that we have and some of the best medical technology in the world with caring and really taking care of people and putting caring back in health care. Explain who, what a doula is. So a doula is a professional person who is with a woman during pregnancy, during labor and delivery, and in the weeks after the baby's born, just to make sure to advocate, to make sure that everything goes well, to be a source of information, and also to be a source of support and comfort. And studies show that women who have worked with doulas have better pregnancy outcomes. Can you talk about weathering 
Who came up with this idea, what it is? So, Arlene Geronimus is an, a researcher at the University of Michigan, and she came up with the idea when she was a college student undergraduate at Princeton. So, she was working at, I think, a, t a school for unwed mothers, and she noticed that um, she would go to their medical appointments with them, and she noticed that their bodies, when they took off their clothes, looked older than would it be expected. And then she started looking at infant mortality in um, those numbers, be in those teens. Because what was interesting at the time—and this is, I think, the 80s—the blame on in black infant mortality was on teen pregnancy. It was like, because these teens, they're irresponsible, they're having babies, they are driving up the numbers of black infant mortality. What she found was actually the opposite, that it was slightly older black women who had higher rates of infant mortality. But the flip was true for white women. So, white teens were driving up rates of infant mortality in whites. So, then she started thinking, oh, this is because they've lived longer, they, black women have lived longer, they've had more access to stress, and it's affecting their pregnancy outcomes. So that's how she came up with the term weathering. But it's a, you know, it's real. It's a, you know, been well studied and been replicated. And I just love the term because it really does say what it is. It's your body is aging prematurely because of what's happening to you. And, you know, when you look at the, you know, sort of the questions that uh, there's a black women's health study and it added race questions in 1997. And the questions, um, it actually made me tear up, because the questions were like, oh, have you ever been treated differently because of your race? Have, do you think people think that they're smarter than you? Have you had bad service at a restaurant because of your race? And then there were hardcore questions like, have you been discriminated against at work, in housing and by the police? And women who had higher rates of reported rates of being discriminated against, whether it was big or small, had more preterm births. What about doctors' biases? How do they play into women and black women giving birth? Well, the majority of physicians in this country, 75 percent, are white. And so studies have shown that they do have biases. And how I look at it is, you know, not saying, oh, you went into the medical profession because you're a big racist. Everyone in this country has unconscious biases based on stereotypes that are date back to slavery. But the solution is to really admit the biases, work on them, tackle them, say you have them, and how can you not bring those in to medical practices, to the medical setting? And that is what the key is, is to say, yes, these exist, but we're going to work on that. And what I've seen is, in medical schools, you have younger medical students who are really trying to work on that. There's this wonderful organization called um, White Coats for Black Justice, and there's also groups around the country that are really trying. I received an email today about a young doctor who was saying, I really want to get more woke and more organized about the kinds of inequities we see in healthcare. That was Linda Villarosa speaking on Democracy Now! in April 2018. Check out her New York Times Magazine cover story, Why America's Black Mothers and Babies Are in a Life-or-Death Crisis. As we end this Making Contact episode on women of color mothers, here's a poem entitled A Conversation with My Six-Year-Old About Revolution by Cynthia DeWioca. When three feet of sunshine... Missing two front teeth, 
asked me why do we need revolution. All I had was a grenade in my mouth. I held him for a while and watched him draw clouds and trees and ladybugs and a house filled with everybody he loves. When was the last time we put to image what we thought the world should be? When did it become enough to know how to promptly explode? I said to him he was much better equipped to figure out the revolution than his mama. That if I don't, he's got to disarm this bomb and throw it out the window. Because the revolution is not about self-defense. It's about self-creation. It's about seeing farther than the walls directly in front of us. And my six-year-old has got a head start. That poem by Cynthia Dewioka is in the book Revolutionary Mothering, Love on the Frontlines, edited by Alexis Pauline Gums, China Martin, and Maya Williams. You heard from them, along with contributors Cynthia Dewioka and Victoria Law, and we thank them all. If you'd like a copy of the book, Revolutionary Mothering, go to our website, radioproject.org, and click the red heart at the top of the site. Thanks to The Laura Flanders Show and to Democracy Now! and this bridge called mybaby.wordpress.com. Thank you also to the Mary Wolford Foundation and Marty Kildebeck, who support our Reproductive Justice episodes. And I'm Sandina Robbins. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.